Tonight we'll be in 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. I want to discuss a really powerful passage of Scripture with you. 1 Kings chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 3. Now, hold your place there, but turn to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. I'll show you a little connection here. 1 Kings chapter 3 is a story about Solomon, King Solomon. I want to show you why that's important. Look what it says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1. It says, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. So Solomon wrote a lot of this book. He wrote the book of Proverbs to a large degree. And, and the book of Proverbs is full of wise sayings. And we're going to dive into Proverbs next week in depth and really, and really chew our way through it. Uh, but you may ask the question or pose the question, Wade, why was Solomon so wise? Where did he get all this wisdom from? How was he able to write a book like Proverbs that has been a blessing to so many through the years? Well, 1 Kings chapter 3 gives us the answer as to why Solomon was so wise. So this is kind of a, uh, an intro study into our study of the book of Proverbs. This kind of sets a foundation for what we're going to begin next week. So look there with me, 1 Kings chapter 3. Verse 6, the Bible says, Then Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you, and you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your Servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen a great people, who are too many to be numbered or counted. So, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and uh, evil. He says there, For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Verse 10, It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing, and God said to him, Because you have Asked this thing, and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments, as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. He came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered burnt offerings and made peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. And so this answers the question, why was Solomon so wise? The, the short answer is, because he asked God for wisdom. And God gave him that uh, wisdom. Now just a little bit of information about Solomon. Solomon was David's son. He was the uh, third king of Israel. He uh, took over the throne from his father David. It transitioned. David transitioned the throne to Solomon. 
Solomon's mother, interestingly enough, was Bathsheba. You remember Bathsheba? David uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then to cover up the fact that she was pregnant by David, he had his uh, had her husband killed. His name was Uriah to cover up his sin, and so that was uh, who Bathsheba was. But after she had the child, her and uh, and after Uriah died, they were married. And they had a child named Solomon. And Solomon was the king that succeeded David. Now, I want you to notice in this text the awesome offer from God. Look what it says there uh, in verse 3. Kind of back up to, to understand what's going on here. In verse 3 it says, Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking the statutes of his father David, except, uh, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon, to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and, and God said, ask what you wish me to give you. And so Solomon is sacrificing animals, worshiping God in Gibeon, and God appears to him and says, ask me for whatever you want. Now, you say, wait, why did God appear to him at Gibeon? Uh, we see in other places, like Chronicles, that Gibeon in this day and time was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so he was there where the Ark was, worshiping the Lord according to the sacrificial system that God had set up, and God appears to him and says, ask me for whatever you want. Now notice there in verse 5, it says, God said, ask what you wish me to give to you. So if God's saying this, he's going to be able to come through, right? I mean... Whatever it is Solomon asked for, God can deliver because he's God, right? I mean, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he, he's in control of everything. I mean, he spoke and the universe left into existence. So whatever Solomon asked for, God will be able to give him. He's absolutely able to come through on this request. If I came to you and said, ask me for whatever you want, there's a good chance you would be disappointed because I wouldn't be able to deliver Okay? I may want to, but I wouldn't have the ability to. Well, God has the ability to, to deliver. And so this is a big, big deal. Solomon, ask me for whatever you want. Now, here's the question I want to pose to you. I think this is in, in your notes. If God appeared and gave you the chance to ask him for anything, what would you ask for? Now, I know you know the right answer because you know about the story, okay? But I, take that out of it, all right? If God just came to you and said, ask me for whatever you want, what would you ask for? Now, that's a head-scratcher type question, isn't it? What would you ask for? Now, now, think about it like this. Your request, whatever you asked for, would reveal much about what your passion is. So, if, you, if God came to you and said, ask me for whatever you want, you say, I want $20 million then that would say something about the passion of your heart. Your passion would be what? Money, okay? And we could go on and on and on. Whatever you asked for would reveal the condition or the, the, the place that your heart is uh, in. So it's, I think it's interesting to note what Solomon asked for, and this reveals the condition of his heart. And so what we want God to do is we want God to shape our hearts so that we're asking him for the right stuff. Does that make sense? Okay, so I want to give you four key aspects of this text. We're just going to kind of walk straight through the text. Four key aspects, and then we'll make some application, and I'll have a, 
opportunity for you to ask questions or make comments. But first of all, I want you to see uh, the recognition. First word there is recognition. Verse 6, Then Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart towards you. You have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not not to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. Notice how Solomon talks about uh, the Lord. He talks about his loving kindness to David. He talks about how he had graciously given him the, the throne of Israel. He talks about how God is Adonai, he is, he, or he is Yahweh, he is Elohim, he is his God. Uh, Solomon talks about God or talks to God with a great reverence and respect. You see that here in this uh, prayer. Uh, I believe that this demonstrates that Solomon feared God. Now I want you to hear me carefully. One of the reasons that we are not desperate for wisdom, the way Solomon was, is because we do not fear God. One of the reasons we're not desperate for wisdom is because we do not fear God. If you don't fear and respect and honor God then how you live your life is not that big of a deal, right? But if you do respect God and honor God and want to live for His glory, then you want to live the right way, right? And, and you only live the right way if you have wisdom. And so if you want to honor God with your life, then you want the wisdom to live an honorable life. That's why I believe the Bible says over in Proverbs chapter... Now, let's just turn the word. Turn to Proverbs 9 with me. Proverbs 9. We'll get to this a lot more in depth in the coming weeks. Look in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The Bible says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. When you understand that God is God and you are not, when you understand that God is to be honored and glorified with your life, and you want to live that kind of life, you will be a wisdom seeker. You will want wisdom in your life. But if you don't fear God, if God's not that big of a deal to you, you're just going to live however you want to live, and your life is going to be very unwise. So one of the reasons we, do not, we are not desperate for wisdom is that we do not fear God. I think it's interesting to note that before Solomon makes a request, before he asks God for something, he just spends some time thinking, saying, God, you're, you're my God, you've been good to my father, you're good to me, your loving kindness is, is, is remarkable. He just spends some time reflecting on God's character. Which, by the way, I think that's what Jesus taught us in the, the Sermon on the Mount. Remember over in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus was teaching us how to pray? He said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, what's the next part? Who art in heaven, that's King James. Our Father who is in heaven hallowed, hallowed, honored, praised, blessed be your name. That's what he's saying there. And, and notice that prayer Jesus teaches, before you ask God for anything, spend some time reflecting on who he is. He's your father. He's in heaven. He's awesome. His name should be hallowed and honored and glorified. Because when you remember who God is, listen to me, when you remind yourself who God is, it changes the way you pray. 
If life is all about you and you don't think much about God, then your prayers are going to be very self-centered. But if you fear God and you know that God is great and you reflect on His character and nature, then your prayers will take on a very God-centered um, aspect. And so, here Solomon recognizes God's greatness and it influences what he asks for. So the first word is the word recognition. The second word I want you to see in this text is the word responsibility. Responsibility. Look what happens in verse 7. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So he still hasn't made a request yet. He still hasn't said to God what he wants. But notice here he's saying, God, you've made me king, and I'm a little child. I don't have the wisdom I need. This people that you've put me over is a great people, a numerous people, and I'm the king now, and I don't know what to do. I had a similar situation like this, not, of course not being a king, but, but I remember when uh, I was, I was, I'd moved to Memphis, I was in seminary, and I'd become a youth minister at a church while I was in school. And the pastor left the church, and so the church asked me to be the interim pastor while they were looking for a pastor. And they called me as pastor, and so they, they made me the, the full-time pastor of the church. And I mean, I, tell my, I'm green now, but I was really, really green back then. This is when I was 23. Uh, I think when they called me as pastor, I was 24. And so I'll never forget the feeling. I walked in the office, and they had this big office and these fancy leather couches and these big bookshelves. I had like five books to put on the bookshelf, you know. And uh, I walked in the office, and I sat down behind the desk, you know, this big old desk, and I thought, I have no idea what to do next. <laughs> I mean, I have a clue what to do next. And they just called me as pastor. So that, that's, what he, that's what he's feeling here. God, you made me king, and I have no idea what to do next. He's recognizing the responsibility that God had given him. God, you've given me great responsibilities. Now, I want you to hear me. Another reason we don't desire wisdom is because we don't understand our callings as Christians. We don't understand that God has called us to do some pretty big stuff, some pretty important stuff, to, to, to be responsible for some very uh, vital things. And because we don't realize how, how serious our responsibilities are, we don't ask for wisdom. But when you understand God has given you some things to be responsible for, it will make you desperate for wisdom. All right? So... Solomon here understands the grave and great responsibility that was his as the king of God's chosen people. The question is, do you understand the great and grave responsibilities God has given you? Do you understand how much you're responsible for? Wait, I don't think I do. Well, this, let me give you a, a sampling. All right, if you look there in your notes, Christians have great and grave responsibilities. Let me just walk through these things with you. Number one, we are called to follow Christ. That's a pretty big responsibility, Right? Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said, If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Jesus said that's what the Christian life is. The Christian life is not church membership. It's not being a Baptist. That's not what being a Christian is. Christianity is when you follow Jesus. You embrace him as Lord and Savior. He washes your sins away. And he comes to live in you and change you. And as he lives in you and changes you, you follow him. Wherever he leads, you go. However he tells you to live, 
The answer is, yes, Lord. Whatever he tells you to do, the answer is, yes, Lord. You follow him as, as he makes you uh, more and more conform to his image. And so we're all called to follow Christ. That's a big deal, right? That's a huge responsibility. Your role as a Christian in this world is to follow Christ. Because in Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, take up your cross daily. So how many days of the week are you to follow Christ? Seven. How many days a year are you to follow Christ? 365. I mean, every day of your life, if you are a Christ follower, if you've been born again, if you've been saved, your role, your responsibility is to follow Christ. Whatever he tells you to do, you do it. All right? Whatever he wants you to do, the answer is yes. Wherever he leads you, you go. You follow Christ and live in accordance with his word, with his truth. So that's number one. And guess what? None of us can do that without his help. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So to think that we want to follow Christ in this life, but we never ask for wisdom to do it? Something's missing, right? Let me give you another calling in our life. We're called to personal holiness. Personal holiness. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 with me. My goal here now, just to be real honest with you, is to overwhelm you. So in these next few minutes, I'm going to try to overwhelm you with all that's on your spiritual plate. Okay? Because we're not desperate enough. So my goal in these next few minutes is to make you desperate for God's wisdom. So I want you to feel overwhelmed. I want you to feel like the first day of class, you know, I remember when I uh, went to college, I got my first syllabus. And they told me the papers I had to write, the books I had to read, and and I felt overwhelmed. Well, I'm I'm going to overwhelm you right now, okay? Look in 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 13. Peter writes, Therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. So he's saying, don't live like you used to live. Now that you're a Christian... There should be a, a fundamental difference in your life. You're, you're, you've been saved. You've been changed. Christ is living in you. So don't live like you used to live. You don't have to live like that anymore. Don't do it. Don't be conformed to your former lust, which were yours in ignorance. Anyone, would anybody characterize yourself as ignorant before you met Christ? I was ignorant before I met Christ and even after I met Christ. But God's gracious, all right? But, like the Holy One who called you, Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Quote from Leviticus. And so the Bible says that as a Christ follower, your your standard for living is the holy God of the universe. And guess what? He's perfect. Right? That's what the word holy means, perfect. No, No moral blemishes, absolute moral perfection. The Bible says in 1 John that God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. So God's perfect, all right? He's holy, and the Bible says, be like God. Ephesians 5 says, imitate God the Father. Imitate Him. Live like Him. Now, that's a big task, right? To be holy like God? To grow in that direction with our holy living? That is a huge, huge thing. And to think that we're going to get there or grow in that direction without wisdom is just a fallacy. 
And so we're called to follow Christ. We're called to personal holiness, to, to, to say yes to the things God tells us to say yes to and no to the things God tells us to say no to, to walk with Him, to obey Him, to let our light shine. We're called to be holy. Next, we are called to make disciples. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. The last chapter in Matthew, verse 18. Jesus' closing words to his disciples before he ascended back to heaven after he died on the cross and rose from the dead. Jesus came up to spoke to them in verse 18 saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus says, here's what I want you to be about. I want you to make disciples. And this commandment is for, for us today, just like it was for the disciples in this day and time. Because he commanded them to make disciples, then he said, I want you to teach the people that become disciples everything I commanded you, which includes the command to make disciples. Does that make sense? So that command to make disciples is for every follower of Christ, not just for the first century disciples. All of us are called to make disciples. Now, what does that mean? The word disciple just means follower or learner. It's what the word means. And we're to make disciples of Jesus. That means we've got to introduce people to Christ by sharing the gospel, right? People apart from Christ are lost. They have sinned against God. They've turned their back against God. They disrespected God. And because of their sin, their rebellion against God, they deserve God's everlasting wrath and condemnation in that awful place called hell. And apart from Christ, they are heading for hell. And guess what? The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have been in that condition. All of us are sinners. But Jesus came and died for our sin on the cross. He, he paid the penalty we deserve to pay. He died in our place. He took our punishment for us. And then after he died, he defeated death itself when he rose from the grave. Correct? And so, we tell people, you're a sinner. You deserve hell and wrath and judgment, but you don't have to go there because God loves you. And God sent his son to take your punishment for you. And guess what? After he died, he rose from the dead. He's alive right now. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's good news, right? That's why it's called the good news, the gospel. So we share that good news so people can place their faith in Christ and meet him and become a disciple. And then, after they become a disciple, the Bible says, Jesus says, we baptize them as an outward symbol of what God has done inwardly. And then we teach them what it means to walk with Christ daily. We teach them all of his commandments. We teach them how to grow in their faith, how to mature, so that they can get to the point where they're reaching out, helping people connect to Christ, making disciples themselves. Now, we're all called to make disciples. Every one of us. Every single one. If we're Christians, we are called to make disciples. And can I just tell you this? This is not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. Because it takes investment in people's lives. At some point, to make disciples, you've got to open up your mouth and tell somebody about Jesus. And to help someone to grow in their faith, you've got to just spend some time with them. And, and none of us have time, do we? I mean, we rush, rush, rush. We rush out the door in the morning. We, we're busy all day long running the rat race. We get home at night. We're exhausted. We put the garage door down behind our vehicle. We walk inside, collapse in the chair after the kids go to bed. And we've got no time for anybody. But if we're going to help people grow in their faith, we've got to, we've got to make time to be with them. 
and teach them what it means to be a Christian, what it means to walk with God. So that task to make disciples is all of our responsibility. And it's not easy. You cannot do it without wisdom. Let me show you, give you another calling of your life. Are you overwhelmed yet? Are you feeling the overwhelmed yet? Okay, we're not there. Just give me some time. We're not even halfway through the list of overwhelming things. Next, we are called to be godly, self-denying spouses. If you're married, the Bible gives you the template for what it means to be a Christian spouse. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22-33 says that wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. They're to submit graciously to the leadership of their husband coming alongside their husband as he, as he leads the family in, a, in the right direction, there to come along beside him and help him lead the family in the right direction to support and encourage her husband in that role of leadership. And the Bible says the husband is to love his wife, Ephesians 5.25, just like Christ loves the church. <laughs> That's a tall order, men, right? To love your wife the way that Jesus loves us? That's a tall order. How does Jesus love? He loves... Perfectly, unconditionally, sacrificially, as a servant. I mean, that's the way Jesus loves. And we're to love our wives in the same way. So here's the picture of biblical Christian marriage. The wife is submitting to her husband, putting her husband first. The husband is loving his wife like Christ. He's serving her and putting her first. And so it's almost like in in Christian marriage, they're they're trying to outdo each other in putting the other ahead of themselves. There's There's this constant dance, if you will, where one is trying to put the other ahead of their own life. When that's happening, that is healthy, and that is fulfilling, and that's what Christian marriage is, but it ain't easy, right? Instead of putting others ahead of ourselves, we're prone to selfishness and saying, meet my needs, all right? It's not easy following God's pattern for Christian marriage, but we're called to do it. That's, that's your responsibility. If you're married, your job as a Christian spouse is to follow God's template for marriage. Next, we are called to point our children to the Lord. Ephesians 6, 4 talks about training your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9 talks about teaching uh, the commandments of the Lord as you're going, as you're coming in your house, wherever you are, you're to teach your children all about the Lord and His Word. And our, our responsibility as parents, I preached on this last Sunday. If you weren't here Sunday, I, I encourage you to get online and listen to the message. It's called Pass It On. And we talked about parents have to pass on the baton of faith to their children and their children's children. And we only have a certain amount of time in which to, in, with which to do it. We have to be urgent in our parenting. And so that's a big deal, to pass on the truths of, of, of the Word of God, the, the reality of God and, and His Son, Jesus Christ, to our kids. Huge, huge task. It ain't easy. It's hard. Next. Everybody with me so far? Everybody knocking these out? Everybody got all these covered so far? Everybody doing good on these? No problem? All right. Everybody's, what, how many have we gone through? One, two, three, four, five. How many are... How many are five for five? Say, wait, I got these, I got these down perfectly. Okay, anybody? Okay, all right. Next, we're called to serve others. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he showed his disciples what it means to serve. He, they came to the, the, the Passover feast with dirty feet, and he 
gets down with a basin and a towel, and he washes the disciples' feet. Here it is, the Lord of glory, washing his disciples' feet. He says, as I've done, you need to do also. You need to serve others. Um, Mark chapter 10. Turn to Mark chapter 10 with me. It's a great passage. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. It says, James and John, the, son, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? That's kind of a, a trick. It's like your kid coming to you and say, will you, will you say yes to whatever I'm about to ask you to do? How many of you would take that bait, parents? Okay. So whatever we ask, Jesus, we want the answer to be yes. So Jesus wisely says, Okay, tell me what you want me to do for you. They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. So when you, when you reign over your kingdom and every knee bows before you and every tongue recognizes that you are Lord, we want to be right there in the mix. One on the right, one on the left. So there's Jesus and then there's James and John. That's what we want. All right? I think they may be missing something here. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? In other words, are you really willing to... Do you really want to be like me? Do you really want to walk down that pathway of suffering that I'm about to walk down? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. In other words, you will suffer for following me. That's what he's saying there. By, by the way, James and John, um, uh, both, uh, uh, James died of, uh, of, of martyrdom. James and John both died of martyrdom. It says there next. They said to him, we are able. No, John died on Patmos. James died of martyrdom. So he said, we are able. So he said, you will drink that cup, verse 40. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it, has been, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your what? Servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus says, if you want to be great, it's not about sitting on the throne on my right and left. Greatness in the kingdom of God, from God's perspective, greatness is serving others. So we're all called to be foot washers. We're all called to put others ahead of ourselves. We're all called to serve others, to meet other people's needs. Next, we're all called to love others. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Look what the Bible says in verse 11. Paul writing here says, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. But notice there he says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another, that's the body of Christ, and for all people. So we are called to love. We're, to call, we're called to love people that love us back. That's not too tall of an order, right? It's easy to love people that love you back. But we're also called to love people that don't love us back. Jesus said in Matthew 5.44 that we're to love our 
enemies. What about that? Loving people that are ugly to you. They want to harm you and destroy you. We're to love our enemies. We're called to love all people. So that's a tall order. As a Christ follower, as a Christian living in this world, you and I are called to love everybody. All right? Next, we're called to a vocation. Look in 1 Thessalonians. You're already there. Look in chapter 4, verse 11. Paul writes, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So he's saying you need to work. You don't just stop working. One of the issues that he was probably dealing with in Thessalonica is this. When Paul went to Thessalonica and preached the gospel, folks got saved. And Paul told them, okay, one day Jesus is coming back. It could be at any moment. So some of the people in Thessalonica said, Jesus could come back. I'm not going to work tomorrow. I'm going to sit around and wait for Jesus to come back. Now, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Until there's no food in the cupboard and the bills aren't getting paid. So Paul's writing to say, listen, Jesus could come back at any moment. He talks about it later on in chapter 4. But in the meantime, you're called to work so you don't have any need in your life. So you're a good example for outsiders, he says. Working hard is a good example for unbelievers. And then he gets a little bit more harsh in 2 Thessalonians. He says, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. So go to work, that's what he's saying. And we're all called uh, to vocation. God gives us vocations to, to provide for our family's needs, to positively tr- contribute to society, to have resources to give to kingdom work. God gives us those vocations and those callings in our lives. So we're called to do that and to work hard and to make a difference in our workplace. And I could go on. There's more callings we have in our life, but those, that's just a sampling of, of things we're called to in our uh, life. We all uh, we, we have kind of life callings, things we like to emphasize and, and work on in our life. Um, for example, you may, have a, you may have a job working uh, as a school teacher, but you have a life calling to uh, impact um, um, orphans in the world. You want to you work to to really help the, the, the growing plight of, 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 of orphans in our world. You want to impact that for the glory of God. You may have some kind of life calling that comes alongside your vocation. And, and we all have those emphases, those things God wants to use us for in our life. And so think about this. Think about our great and grave responsibilities. We're called to follow Christ, personal holiness, to make disciples, to be godly self-denying spouses, point our children to the Lord, serve others, love others, vocation. I mean, that's a lot of stuff, Right? You can't do this. You cannot do this apart from God's help. You cannot do this without wisdom. And so, when you realize how great and grave your responsibility is, it'll cause you to start asking God for wisdom. That's what Solomon did. He said, God, I'm a king now. I don't know what to do. I need help. And so, understanding our responsibilities leads us to be desperate for God's wisdom in our life. Now look at number three. Here's the request that, that Solomon makes back in 1 Kings 3. First Kings 3, he actually asks God for something. He, re- he recognizes who God is. He, he, he recognizes his own responsibilities in life. But then he makes the request in verse 9. So, 
Give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. Who is able to judge this great people of yours? So God, give me discernment, give me wisdom, give me insight so I can make wise decisions as the king of this people. Here's what he was doing. Now look this, at this on your notes. He asked God to equip him with wisdom so that he could be more effective in his area of service. Or you might say more effective in his areas of calling. And we need to do the same thing. We need to ask God for wisdom so we can be more effective as Christ followers, disciple makers, spouses, parents, servants, lovers of our enemies, all these different things. We need God's wisdom so we can be more effective in those areas. Let me say it like this. If your entire prayer life revolves around trying to get God to give you the things of this world, you're missing it. You're missing the reason why you're here. Listen, God does not have you here to accumulate junk that one day is just going to burn up. That's not why you're here. Now, God blesses us with material things, and we thank Him for those things. But if you think your job or your, your, your role on this earth is just to accumulate a bunch of stuff, what a sad way to live. Because stuff just fades away, doesn't it? There's something bigger than just accumulating material possessions. You have some callings in your life. And so your prayer life should not just be revolving around, God, give me this, God, give me that. Your prayer life should be, God, I need wisdom. You've given me some responsibilities. I want to be faithful in those. God, give me wisdom. When was the last time you asked God to equip and empower you to fulfill your callings? And so ask God for wisdom. It is an essential. You can ask God for extras too. Sometimes God will answer those extras. But make sure that you don't just ask for the extras and miss the essentials. One, one time I was uh, home visiting my dad. And uh, he took my uh, truck out to his little shed. And he, he, uh, he changed the oil for me. He changed, you know, got it changed. And he said, wait, I changed your oil for you. And I said, great, Dad. I said, can I get a car wash while you're at it? He, I thought it was funny. He didn't think it was very funny. The... The essential was, was the oil change. I, I, was, I was joking about the extras, but sometimes our prayer life can be all about the extras, and we can miss the essentials. It doesn't matter if, you're, if your vehicle's clean if the motor burns up, right? And, and what I'm trying to encourage you to do is, in your prayer life, because God has invited you to ask Him for things, ask Him about the essentials, about wisdom to fulfill your calling. Now let's look at the response of God, and then we'll be through. The response, that's the fourth word. Talk about recognition, responsibility, request, and then response. How does God respond to Solomon's request for wisdom? Verse 10, it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon asked this thing. It pleased God that Solomon asked him for uh, wisdom. So God is, is honored by the fact that Solomon wants to fulfill his callings well. And it pleased him, he asked for wisdom. And God gave him wisdom. If you keep reading in chapter 3, look down with me in verse 16. There's a story about two women that came to him with one baby. And they were both saying to Solomon, I'm the real mother. And so what's, what's Solomon supposed to do? He's supposed to choose who the real mother is. But because God gave him wisdom, he knew the real mother would come to the surface if something happened. And so he said, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do, since you guys can't 
uh, say who the real mother is or, or one of you is lying. He said, I want you to cut the baby in half and give half to each of the mothers. And of course, the real mom says, no, no. And it's evident at that moment who the real mom is. Solomon gives her her baby back. And it says the people marvel at his wisdom. Look what it says in verse 28. When all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. So God answered his request. God gave me discernment to, to discern between good and evil, and God does it. We see it here in the next story. God gave him wisdom. Now let me show you a really cool verse, okay? Thinking about that, how he answered Solomon's prayer. Turn to James chapter 1, New Testament. James chapter 1. Verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, that's all of us in this room, we do not have the wisdom we need apart from Christ to, to fulfill the callings that God has given us. So if any of you lacks wisdom, listen, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. So just like Solomon asked for wisdom, and God said, here it is, Solomon, if we ask for wisdom, the Bible promises that God will give us wisdom. Think about that. What a vast, untapped resource. God said, I'll give your wisdom if you ask. When's the last time you asked God for wisdom? Because he promises you'll get it. So ask him. And so it honored God that Solomon asked for wisdom, and he gave him wisdom, but then he gave him some more stuff. Because he was honored by by. Solomon's request. Look back in 1 Kings 3 with me. I want to show you what God did for him. It says in verse 10, It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing, and God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, you have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I've done according to your words. Behold, I've given you a wise and discerning heart so that there's been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I've also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. So God says to Solomon, not only will I give you wisdom, but because... You honored me with your request. I'm going to give you some other stuff too. I'm going to bless you with long life and riches and wealth and power. And God just blesses him. When I studied this, it reminded me of Matthew 6.33. You know what Matthew 6.33 is? Matthew 6.33 talks about the things we have need of in life. Shelter, you know, clothing, food. And in Matthew 6.33, Jesus said, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. You'll just seek Christ, seek His wisdom to obey Him, to live for His glory. God will take care of all the rest of the details of your life. And He may go over and above to bless you. You aren't looking for the extras, you're looking for the essentials. But sometimes God throws in the extras. Back on that evening when Dad changed my oil, and I joked with him about washing my car, he looked at me funny. But you know what he did? He went and washed my truck. I helped him. We got some stuff out and and wash the truck. But why would he do that? Why would he change the oil 
the essential, and then throw in the extra. Because he's my father. He's my father. And if we'll just focus on the essentials, our life callings, and ask him for the things that are most important, and, and make that the, the, the core of who we are, you, can, you know that God will throw in the extras too. That's the kind of God he is. And we just give him the glory for that in our lives. So that was God's response to Solomon. So recognition, responsibility, request, response. This answers the question, why Solomon was so wise? And why Solomon was the primary writer of the book of Proverbs? And so starting next week, we're going to start in Proverbs 1 and walk through Proverbs and, and think about how we are to live a wise life, what a wise life looks like in terms of our relationship with God, our relationship with others, uh, and, and all sorts of other issues, money, uh, finances, all these sorts of things will surface in our study of the book of Proverbs. And it's all about living, walking in a wise way. So I hope we'll be like Solomon, and we'll come next week hungry for wisdom and hungry for God to speak to us and give us what we need to make good Christ-honoring decisions in this life.